The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. We, um, we do come to this time. Um, I waited for it to, to hear from you through your word. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be like a, a soft breeze that would just pass through here first to, just to clear out any fogginess, any distractions that would be present, that the skies would clear and the word of God would shine through brightly and ultimately shine in our hearts. The Holy Spirit, you would take those words and, and apply them. Wondrously work miracles, revealing sin, drawing sinners to repentance, uh, magnifying the name of Christ, stirring affections for him. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, church, good morning to you, each and every one. Morning. Thank you. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Good morning to those who are joining us from home. All right, as Ben, as ben shared, we are in Ephesians 6. All right, and I have the privilege to bring God's word this morning. And we are, we, I'm hearing good, no, yes, yes, okay. Sorry, I'm a, a weak voice, even weaker this morning, so. By God's grace, I got a thumbs up from Caleb. Um, we are nearing the end of our study through the book of Ephesians. We're, we're, in the, we're well into the, the last chapter. And the whole epistle, in brief summary, courses in this manner. Paul starts off, just again, from, starting from, be, from beginning to end, just a brief summary. Paul starts off with making known all the spiritual blessings we have in Christ Jesus to the praise of his glorious grace. Then he proceeds to prayer, giving thankfulness to God for them, for the church, and along with that, asking for help from God to be given to the church to comprehend these blessings that we've received, to comprehend them to increasing measure that God would give his people the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him and in the hope to which he has called us. And then from, from these heights, because he brings us high, from these heights, Paul then grounds his audience by recalling who we once were before God saved us by grace. That our place before God as holy and blameless is not our own doing. But rather, it is a Christ-purchased gift of his to us, who are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. With this direction given, Paul makes clear that we are we're all one in Christ. That through him, through Christ, we all have access in one spirit to the Father as fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God being built together as a dwelling place for him, for God, by the Spirit. And the workings of this, as Paul moves on, the workings of this is a mystery. It's a mystery, a mystery revealed through the gospel according to the eternal purpose that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord by which, through the church, 
the manifold wisdom of God who created all things might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Something we take great encouragement in and courage of heart in as, as partakers of, even when we suffer for it. Mindful of this, Paul then leads the recipients of this letter, which includes us. Paul leads them in prayer once again to the Father, asking of him to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith and being rooted and grounded in love, we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. And Paul then asserts the importance for unity, unity among those who are one, urging us, urging the church to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, that that we, the saints of the Most High God, the family of God, that we'd be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. As being many members, you know, differing members who are all a part of one body. Growing up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. That we may build each other up in love. In love. And from here... Paul describes the, the, the living out of this new life in Christ. Generally speaking, much, like, much as Ben prayed this morning, to carefully walk, to look, excuse me, to look carefully on how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise, to be filled with the Spirit of Christ, that we may walk in the love of Christ, making the best use of our time displaying his light during these dark, evil days. But then he gets more specific, doesn't he? He gets more specific in regards to relationships, beginning with our closest relationships, those within the home, between husband and wife, parent and child, you know, our our family, And then those relationships outside the home in which the role of of servant and master come into play, most commonly in our day, expressed in our place of, of business, whether we are a worker or a business owner. And also, I'd say, in in your classroom, in school, between pupil and teacher, how those relationships uh, are areas where we express this, this new life of Christ lived out. And this brings us now to the conclusion. This brings us to the conclusion. I mean, you have that word there. Finally, as the opening of verse 10 states, finally. Well, what's the emphasis? What emphasis is Paul bringing together of all he has unpacked over the bulk of this letter? Consider what preceded this. Focused attention is given on living out this new life in Christ. Putting off the old self, epitaphemy, remember that one? Epitaphemy, I kept thinking about that, this made me think. Epitaphemy, putting off this old life and putting on this, the new life, walking in love as Christ loved us, which, which works us out works itself out chiefly in our relationships within the church, within our home, and with whom we interact with in the world. Would you agree, excuse me, would we agree together that we all want to be successful in every one of these areas? Want to be. Not are. None of us have arrived. We want to be successful. I want my life to be an effective witness for Christ. To have success in modeling 
the life and love of Christ with you all, you know, in maintained unity among great diversity. I want a, a successful marriage that flourishes in all the portrayals of the relationship Christ has with his bride, the church. My wife and I desire greatly to have success in our parenting endeavors, in raising Grace and Matthew, that peace, love, and kindness would, would harmonize together, making pleasant melodies to the Lord, to ourselves, and all we interact with. Having success in, in magnifying the name of Christ in my workplace is of utmost importance to me. Do I hear a yes and amen to that for yourselves also? We agree then. The Christian aims to do well in all that God's word instructs us in how we are to live. We aim to do well there. In in light of the gospel of the grace of God revealed to us by which we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ, we aim to do well. Not, Not earn his favor, but knowing that in both hearing his word and doing his word, putting it into practice, that it always results in our good and brings glory to his name. The Christian aims, wants to be successful in doing so. Amen? We do. All right. Well, for this to be the case, Paul closes out the epistle with sharp emphasis on how the Christian is to successfully live this life by faith. And with the privilege to preach two consecutive Sundays, today being the first of the two, we are going to take this primary truth from the passage in two parts. Somewhat like a TV show you've watched where you are tracking along, the plot's building, and then you realize there's more to this episode, and time is running out. Like, they can't wrap this up in two minutes. And sure enough, at the end of a dramatic scene, in the moment of the episode, the last scene just freezes with this statement, what? To be continued, dot, dot, dot. That dot, dot, dot was way into use before texting an email. And youth here probably have like, what are you talking about? I don't know why, this is random. Well, old school TV, that was the case. You had to wait a week. And you would get that, a whole week to see what the next episode was, to be continued. Well, in similar fashion, we're going to take this primary truth and break it into two parts. And I'm letting you know in advance so as not to catch you off guard. Verses 10 through 18b will be broken into two parts. Part one in our consideration today is seen in verses 10, 11, and 12. These three verses are what, we'll be, what we will be covering this morning and how the Christian is to successfully live this life by faith. For the Christian to do so, they must, part one, today's sermon, they must continually have their confidence placed in God and not themselves. Stay tuned next week for part two. Today's focus, for the Christian to, be, to successfully live this life by faith, is on part one, and how we must continually have our confidence placed in God and not ourselves. Now, how do we do this? How do we do this? Well, praise be to God, he provides instruction through Paul of the how on three points. On three points. Number one, know who your God is. Number two, know who you are. And number three, 
Know who your enemy is. Our first point, drawn from verse 10, our source of strength. Know who your God is. Let's go ahead and and read that passage together. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Strong, strength, and might, all derived from God as the source. Sounds good, doesn't it? We likely are all quick to say yes and amen to that. But how is this how is this derived from God who is the source? Like how is that done? By knowing him. By knowing him. I mean this this is why Paul prayed to God for the church asking God that the church would be given the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. To know intimately and experientially, to know these spiritual realities in which we believe by faith. In like manner, he prayed also for God's strength to comprehend with all the saints God's love which he lavished upon us through his son. This love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Why is this so important? Knowledge of God and his love in and through Jesus Christ. Why did Paul repeatedly seek God's favor to do so on behalf of the church? For their assurance. For their assurance. You see, church, the more we are able to truly comprehend who God is, who he is, and his love for us, and all that he has done for us and has given us through his son, Jesus Christ, the more fearless a life of faith we will live with eyes fixed on the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I mean, just as the hymn goes, and I'm going to need help here, Caleb, if you put that up there. Just as the hymn goes, help me out. Is it up? Hit it. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his Wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Thank you. That's assurance. That's assurance. And if it's sung from the depths of your heart, it's sung by one who is confident in God and therefore fearless in this life of faith. Fearless because their eyes are fixed on the source of their strength, who is a warrior king, who has already won the war. Risen, exalted King Jesus has conquered all, Satan, sin, and death, defeated them by the cross, rose again from the grave, and ascended to heaven where he sits enthroned at the right hand of God the Father, who loves his children with an everlasting love. I mean, what shall we say to these things, right? You know that verse Paul rejoices in in Romans 8. If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I mean, who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, was raised 
who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I mean, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor powers, and note that, Christian, nor angels, nor rulers, nor powers, we'll come back to that later, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Psalm 46, the Lord of hosts is with us. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, God is in the midst of his church. She shall not be moved. With God at your back, and your front, and right alongside with you, sometimes carrying you, you may march ahead with confidence in him to successfully live this life by faith. Psalm 54, 4, In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? We do grow weary. We are weak. We are faithless. We err. We fail others. God never grows weary. God is all-powerful. God is faithful even when we are faithless. God is righteous and holy and always acts with perfect wisdom and goodness without fail. In him, not ourselves, but in him, every Christian, regardless of age, Every Christian, young and old, male and female, can have lion heart confidence to successfully live this life by faith. Now, before we move on from here, there is a qualifier to be made. For we may believe these truths, but not experience them in our lives. How is this possible, you ask? Walking in disobedience. A Christian fundamentally cannot be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and thereby successfully live this life by faith if they are living in sin if they are not practicing repentance in their life, if godly sorrow over sin is not present. They cannot be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might to successfully live this life by faith. I mean, where do I, where do I draw these conclusions? Let's look to the scriptures and see if they agree. Let's start with Nehemiah in chapter 8, verse 10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It's plain as day there. One who has joy in the Lord is one who delights in his word and gladly obeys and is brokenhearted. They grieve when they don't. The joy of the Lord is your strength, yours and mine. A Christian in habitual sin has no joy in the Lord and therefore draws no strength from him. But let's not stop there. Take the passage found in the book of Joshua. Words spoken by God to Joshua 
as he is commissioning him to go in and take possession of the promised land. Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. Only be strong and very courageous. Being, you catch that? Being, as in regularly doing, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left. In other words, keep it close. Keep it close and put it into practice. Do not turn from it. That you may have, and here it is, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have, once again, good success. Have I not commanded you? Now listen here, verse 9. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. With joy in God, take confidence in him and not yourself. One more for added measure to close this point out. Proverbs 3. Verses 1 through 6. My son, and I can't read those Proverbs without like hearing that plea as a dad. Like, my son, my son. And I hear that from my father, my heavenly father say that to me. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. You hear that plea? That's our father. He's pleased to us. Please, not with an E, P-L-E-A-S. He please. But let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and yours, years of life and peace they will add to you. Notice how material possessions and power and prestige did not make the list. Those are not markers of success. They're not in the list. Let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God And man, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding, i.e., have confidence in God and not yourself. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Take joy. And knowing your God, who is your source of strength, that you may have confidence in him to successfully live this life by faith. With this firmly established, we now move on to another help and how we may continually place our confidence in God and not ourselves. The second point is to know who you are. To know who you are. And, and before, we venture, before we venture into verse 11, which opens the conversation on this point, I'm, gonna, I'm going to refresh us on a few truths about this, lest we forget. First off, first off, we are... Nothing apart from Christ. Worse yet, we are condemned sinners, fully, fully deserving, fully deserving God's just wrath for our sin and rebellion against him. Eternal 
conscious torment forever and ever and ever. I said eternal. We deserve that, period. We, apart from Christ, that is our position. Paul unpacks this earlier in, in this very letter. I mean, here is a snippet. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you, Christian, church, me, that's who he's addressing. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Notice once there. A Christian is one who repents and walks in repentance. And when you once, once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, not passionate for God, passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, not desire to glorify Christ, desires to feed flesh, desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That is who every one of us is. We are all one category apart from Christ. And if that isn't weighty enough, try this on for size. Job 25, 4 through 6. How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who was born of a woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes, in God's eyes. How much less man, who is a maggot. That's what it says. Who is a maggot? And the son of man, who is a worm. The word of God. There it is. You feeling good about yourself? Here's another. Isaiah 40, verse 17. All nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. United States of America would be a nation that we as citizens make a tittle portion of. Our nation itself, with all other nations over all times, is as nothing before him, less than nothing and emptiness. That about sums up life apart from Christ. Remember now, remember, we are in Christ. If you've confessed that you're a sinner and you look to him as your savior and you follow him, not following the passions of your flesh, your body, and your mind, but you are following Christ. You are repenting when you sin and have godly sorrow over your sin. Then you are in Christ and fellow heirs with him by faith. So, though we do not forget who we once were before God saved us by grace, mindful of that, we make it our aim to press on to the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We press on. We're following Christ. We press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We press on to make, to be, we press on to be more of who God already declares us to be in Christ, motivated by his love shed abroad in our hearts that we are unworthy to receive. Paul spent time Speaking of this new self, we are to put on, enduo. Do you remember that one, that Greek word for that? Enduo, put on. This new life that has a Christ-centered mindset, which commands our outlook on how we live each day and who we live it for. Now, in the closing of this epistle, God brings further insight through Paul in who we are to help us 
continually place our confidence in God and not ourselves. Let's read verse 11. Put on, in duo, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Put on, in duo, the same word used by Paul in putting on the new self he uses here in reference to the whole armor of God. And duo, put on the whole armor of God. Who puts on armor? None other than a soldier. None other than a soldier. And so if, if soldiers, who enlisted us? God. God enlisted us to fight his, in his army. We hear similar language of this from Paul in Philippians 2.5. Paul writes, I have thought it necessary to, to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Also in Philemon, Paul writes, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Fellow brother, worker, messenger, minister, and soldier. Distinct attributes of a Christian, but all interchangeable in speaking of a child of God. We, every child of God, are soldiers in the Lord's army. And we get a powerful, powerful picture of this from our commander-in-chief, Christ Jesus, in the book of Joshua. Let's go there again. Joshua chapter 5, 13 and 14. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his, with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him, I think trembling. It doesn't say that, but I think trembling. Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. I get goosebumps reading that. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Our commander-in-chief, King Jesus, who conquered Satan, sin, and death, gives us charge to do the same in this life by faith. In his strength, with the weapons of warfare that he supplies, we are to do battle against Satan, sin, and the flesh with confidence in God who already won the victory for us. Like much of Christianity, it's a paradox. Fight something that is already won? Yes. Yes, that is exactly what we are to do against Satan, against sin, and against the flesh. Do in the power of his might for our good and his glory. We are fighting battles against Satan's sin in the flesh every day. Every day. A strong warrior in God's army wears all the armor of God. 
who is your strength. Armor that's not made with human hands. Armor that fits. It fits any soldier of God. Unlike, unlike young David, who attempted to put on Saul's armor before going out to meet Goliath in battle. Do you guys remember that scene? It didn't fit at all. It probably looked much like Micah would if he were to put on his dad's military garb. You know, all suited up. I'm ready to, I'm ready to battle, pops. No, no, I'm sorry, Micah. It's super cool. You were gung-ho in your dad's soldier attire, but you are not going to be able to do battle in that. You're going to trip. You're not going to be able to move. It's just not going to work. You're not going to be able to properly fight. But on the other hand, on the other hand, the armor of God, it fits every one of his children, regardless of age, regardless of your size, gender, or race. It's all the same armor, and we may all be equally equipped with it to fight our daily battles against Satan, sin, and the flesh. The armor of God, church, signifies, it signifies that our confidence is being placed in God and not ourselves. When we put that on, that is signifying, I am helpless. I cannot do this. I need you, God. It must be put on. And do, it must be put on. If this new life is your shirt, then the armor of God is your jacket, perhaps. I don't know, but put it on every day. If we stand any chance of standing against our enemy, we've got to put it on. It is God who has enlisted us and equips us for the battles we fight in the strength he supplies. And a good soldier, a good soldier knows well whom they are fighting against. You know, the end of verse 11. Stand against what? The schemes of the devil. A good soldier knows their enemy well, which leads us to our final point. Know who your enemy is. Detailed description is provided for us in verse 12. But first off, isn't it true? In preparations for battle, a successful warrior captain is one who thoroughly studies who their enemy is, learns their tactics, their motives, how they think and operate, and, and learns their kryptonite, you know, namely what will bring them to their knees defeated. Let's give attention to verse 12 to learn about whom we are fighting against. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. To begin, to begin, know this of our enemy. He is very real. He is very real. Satan and his demonic forces exist. When Satan, an archangel, was cast out of heaven, he took a third of the angels with him who joined in his rebellion against the Most High God. Satan and his demonic forces are real, and they don't walk around wearing red, holding a little pitchfork in their hands and sporting some tiny horns out of their heads. No, the devil is the prince of the power of the air. He is the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. He is the accuser of the brethren. As Paul references in 2 Corinthians, he is the God of this world. He and his servants will disguise themselves as an angel of light to draw people away from the truth, to deceive them. He is a liar. He is the father of lies. 
He is powerful. He is powerful and knows Scripture good enough to tweak it to serve his own demonic purposes. Satan and demons are evil spirits that can possess a person so that they are not themselves, but rather under their demonic influence. They can also oppress a person, oppress them, oppress them with various afflictions of torment, mental, physical, circumstantial, evil spirits, demonic forces, rulers and authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places are very real and are the Christian's enemy. They, don't miss this church, they are fighting against our success in being an effective witness for Christ of having a godly, flourishing marriage, of raising God-fearing children, of children honoring their parents, of the soldier of God modeling Christ's likeness in our lives each and every day, wherever we are. We, We aim with God's help for success in all of these areas. The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places aim to wreck it all. They aim to wreck it all. Hell bent on that. The cosmic powers over this present darkness wage war in direct opposition to what we are striving for. That's a reality. An enemy that, in the Christian's own strength, are helpless. Helpless to stand against. Helpless. An enemy that studies you. Yeah, he studies you. He knows your weaknesses. He knows what tempts you. He knows what to whisper in your ear. What lies you're apt to believe. He knows and he watches and he is relentless in his efforts to wreck your life. To shipwreck your faith or even prevent one from coming to faith in Christ in the first place. Our enemy, whom we know, as I recall you to a verse referenced earlier in Romans 8, we know and can be sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor powers, our enemy, nor things present or things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. They can't do that. Fellow worker and soldier, we know this. How do we know this? Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened by God our Father, that we may know what is the hope to what he has called us, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above, no, don't miss this, Christian, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. We know that of our enemy as well. Amen? We know that our, of our enemy, know that of our enemy. These spiritual forces of evil that are opposing us, that are trying to wreck what we aim to have success in the strength of God. They aim to wreck it. We know their position. We know that they are far below him, him, Jesus, who rendered them powerless by his sacrificial death on the cross and rose again from the grave as conquering 
king and who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. They may have access to God, as we read about in Job, and also the example in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, where Jesus tells Peter, also known as Simon, Jesus tells him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded. That's a crazy conversation. Satan is demanding from Jesus, demanded to have you, Simon, that he might sift you like wheat. I cannot read that without chills. They have access. That is reality. That happens. We must understand this to be so. And though Jesus is far above them all, all the spiritual forces of evil who tremble at his name, knowing their end is certain, destined to be cast into the lake of fire, to be tormented forever and ever, though this is a reality, and we see them beg from Jesus while he walked this earth not to torment them before the appointed time. So many accounts of that. Don't, don't destroy us now. It's not appointed yet. We know this. We also know that God gives Satan a leash, as it were. He gives Satan a leash, as it were. Allows Satan allows Satan to operate to the degree God sovereignly determines to do so. Why? Why? Why is this so? I can't, nor will I attempt to provide you with an all-encompassing answer to that question. But I will offer a couple reasons for your contemplation. First off, the end has yet to come. The end has yet to come. The eternal purposes of God that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You know, this, this mystery is yet complete in its unfolding. We are in the last days, no question. But the last day, the day of the Lord, has yet to come. And therefore, the God of this world, Satan, is allowed to exist and operate according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So chew on that, along with me, and always know while you're chewing on that, always know that God is infinitely wise. He is always good and completely trustworthy without fail. Secondly, secondly, and the only other consideration I have to offer in regards to this question. God allows Satan a measure of power to be used against us for, for the purpose to grow our strength in him, in God. To show us to show us that we cannot place our confidence in ourselves. It is foolish and futile to do so. Psalm 49, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like a beast that perish, perishes. This is the path of those who foolish, this is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Confidence in yourself, however Pomp display it is, is foolishness, empty, 
We need to see that. We need to be reminded of it regularly. Therefore, God wisely allows this, allows affliction, allows suffering by the influence of spiritual forces of evil fighting against us. God wisely allows us to a measure, because he knows what each of his children are able to handle. He allows us to a measure, which does vary for his kids, right? You're growing in the Lord. It's going to be turned up a little bit to grow you more. It varies for his children, each of them differently, and over the course of their life, there's variation there for the good purpose to grow our confidence to be entirely placed in him so that he alone would be our strength to successfully live this life by faith. Who himself, and this is such a beautiful thing, who himself, God himself, after we have suffered a little while, whatever measure he determines necessary, after we have suffered a little while, God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What a promise. He is faithful to do so through each and every battle we fight. We can be confident in that according to the promise of his word just given. Only by God, only by God, may we be able to stand against our enemy, having put on the whole armor of God, signifying our confidence being in God and not ourselves. If we stand with confidence in whom has enlisted us and equips us for the battles we fight and the strength he supplies, if we stand with confidence in God and not ourselves, we will successfully live this life by faith. Claiming victories in the battles we fight against Satan, sin, and the flesh. Every day that we already have the victory won by our risen King Jesus. Amen. Amen. We must put on in duo the whole armor of God, signifying our confidence in God and not ourselves. How then do we put it to use? To be continued. Dot, dot, dot. Would you guys join me in prayer, please? Almighty God, there's a lot in this passage that would cause us to tremble, and rightly so. But it is not balanced with what would give us, uh, uh, that would lead us to take courage of heart. It is overcome with that, and the fact that we can know who our God is, we can stand against our enemy with confidence in you, not ourselves, with everything that you have supplied to live this life faithfully, by faith. God, I thank you for these promises. I thank you that we can have such a confidence, that we can have victory in our lives. And I know I'm not alone when there is many battles that have rendered me defeated, wrecked. But my head lifts up to you, to my risen king who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, who intercedes for us, supplying the strength, sustaining us, guiding us through the battle. 
the battles we fight, Father, even as Paul prayed, help us. Help us know you more. Help us know this love of God in Christ Jesus that surpasses knowledge. That whatever we do face, that our eyes in the facing of it, that we already are fixed upon you, Lord Jesus, set on you, looking to you for strength, drawing from the source. despising any confidence we would be tempted to place in ourselves and doing battle against our very real enemy. Not with the weapons in our own strength, our physical, but spiritual battle. Grow us in that. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.